He was raised in a vaguely religious home and then converted to Islam. But something wasn't right. Mike's story reads like a novel, and we'll give you the condensed version just ahead. As you listen, you'll discover why thousands of Muslims are meeting Christ and declaring, I found the truth. Plus, our host, Charlie Dyer, shares an unusual devotional, the fishy weather forecast. It's all ahead. Hey, welcome to today's edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Charlie Dyer, isn't in the studio today. He's in Israel. What's going on, Charlie? Uh, John, we're having a great time in Israel with, with group number two now, working our way through the land. Yeah, you are now midway through your second tour in Israel. I want to ask you what's been happening there over the past week after I ask, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. In the lead up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, They'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. So, Charlie, you completed one tour group there in Israel. You are now midway through the second tour. What's been happening over there the past week? Well, Israel finally went on daylight saving time at 2 a.m. Friday morning. But the areas controlled by the Palestinian Authority didn't go on daylight saving time until 2 a.m. Saturday morning. Now, this isn't a case where either of the groups is trying to be obstinate. Israel chose 2 a.m. Friday morning so the change could take place before the start of the Sabbath, Shabbat. And the Palestinians waited because they didn't want the change to interrupt their holy day, which is Friday. But the results of all this is that any tourists in Jerusalem can get terribly confused at the time because Friday, that Friday, as they're traveling around, depending on which cell phone tower their phone is pinging, the time on their phone keeps moving forward or backward an hour. Now, that hasn't been a problem for our group, though, because we're still up in Galilee. Today, we visited Dan and Bonius, Mount Hermon, and the Golan Heights. And I'm also glad we're up here because the Muslim holy month of Ramadan started this past Wednesday evening. So Friday was the first Friday of Ramadan, which is a time of massive crowds in Jerusalem and a fair amount of attention as well, especially on the Temple Mount and around the Old City. It's definitely nicer being up here in the north with the green grass and the flowers. Well, from your perspective there on the ground, how safe is Israel these days? People often ask. Yeah, and there are incidents that take place in Israel on a regular basis, just like in all other countries of the world. But even now, it's still an incredibly safe place to visit. And that's not just my opinion. A recent U.S. insurance comparison rated Israel as the fifth safest country among the 50 countries in the world most visited by tourists. Israel came in right behind Switzerland, the Netherlands, Denmark, and Singapore. Now, by way of comparison, the UK came in 10th, France was 15th, Australia was 18th, Canada was 21st, and the US came in at number 30 on the list. Now, I tell people there is some danger going to Israel, but once you make it to the airport there in the States, most of the danger is over, and this recent ranking supports that tongue-in-cheek answer that I give. Now, my top concerns when I'm leading groups over here are dehydration 
and watching out for crazy drivers when crossing the street. Another recent study placed Israel among the top 10 happiest countries in the world, along with New Zealand, Switzerland, and several Northern European and Nordic countries. And that's in spite of the political tension being experienced here. Now, in that survey, the U.S. came in 16th place, the U.K. at 17, and France at number 20. So Israel is even a happier place than it is back home. Now, I think our tourists have picked up on both the sense of safety and that sense of emotional and spiritual well-being while they've been here. One reason for their excitement is the incredible access to sights. Yeah, sitting in a 2,000-year-old theater in Caesarea or Beit Shan or hiking across the site of the ancient city of Dan or visiting the Israel Museum and standing just feet away from the sarcophagus that once held King Herod the Great, that brings a sense of wonder and awe that just can't be explained. Uh, Those experiences really are magical. Uh, They're life-transforming, in fact. And while I'm speaking of lists, Masada was recently selected in Israel here as the top national park for tourists followed by Caesarea, Engedi, Qumran, Caesarea Philippi, Dan, Mount Arbel, and the Herodium. And uh, we're in the process of visiting all of those on this tour. Uh, Perhaps the most unsafe thing I can say about a trip is that Israel does expect individuals to exercise just common sense. You may walk down the snake path at Masada, but that doesn't mean everybody can or should walk down. Uh, That's an experience I'm choosing to forego on this trip. Well, Charlie, you know, uh, your friend Dan Anderson, our producer, and yours truly have twice uh, not just gone down but gone up that snake path in a uh, pre-dawn hike. So we're, we're kind of jealous. Well, speaking of adventures, you've had plenty yourselves and done a great job of capturing them with your camera, both video and photographs. And they're all on display at our Facebook page. Tell folks what they can expect as they venture there, Charlie. Well, what they can see there is a, a daily summary, a kind of a two-minute video of everything that we uh, saw and did that day, along with any other pictures I took that I think are just interesting or that uh, give a a different perspective on Israel than someone might have. Well, you know Charlie as the radio host, Charlie as the Israel expert, but he's quickly becoming Charlie the the film guy, the video guy, and uh, his work on display in addition to the photographs at our Facebook page. Just search for The Land and the Book. You're listening to The Land and the Book. We're a production of Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger, glad to have your company. And we're going through a list of current event stories for the week. The struggles and opposition to Israel's new government continue, of course, and they seem to go beyond simply, you know, policy disagreements. What's really behind the rather extreme reactions we're seeing, Charlie? Well, I think part of the reaction is what we might think of as a liberal conservative debate. Like our country, there's a polarization in terms of the vision each side has when it comes to Israel's direction forward. But there's something else driving the intensity of the debate in Israel, and it's the demographic shift that's taking place. The Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, are the fastest-growing segment within Israel's population. By the end of this decade, they'll comprise 16% of Israel's total population, and their large families suggest those numbers are going to continue to increase. Right now, ultra-Orthodox children represent nearly 20% of all students in school, and that number jumps to 25%, when only Hebrew-speaking students are counted. Uh, Secular Israelis, who have been the vast majority since the founding of the state, are watching the changes being proposed by the government, and they're seeing those as a troubling sign of growing religious influence on the part of the ultra-Orthodox. Their fear is that the impact on the ballot box will translate into a growing push to impose ultra-Orthodox standards and values on all Israelis, 
you know, from closing stores, uh, shutting down bus lines, and even closing streets on Shabbat to imposing stricter standards of dress and segregating beaches. Secular Israelis see things that were once limited to uh, ultra-Orthodox enclaves now being expanded into other areas uh, of the general population. Uh, this is a cultural and religious war, and the numbers favor the ultra-Orthodox since they're the ones having the larger families. The secular Israelis see the current fight over the courts as their line-in-the-sand moment. If the courts get changed, they could find their secular vision for Israel replaced by that of the ultra-Orthodox, and that's why they're so driven to stop the current government. Uh, their fear increased recently when an ultra-Orthodox lawmaker and minister within the education ministry told a gathering that secular Israelis should be afraid of his community's growing side. So, John, it's a cultural and a religious war, and the fight will continue to intensify. Sounds like it. Wow. Well, moving from Israel to its neighbor, Egypt, the land of the Nile is now apparently underwater financially. What exactly is happening in Egypt, and how could it impact the government there? Egypt is hurting financially. In January, inflation hit a five-year high of 25.8%. That's up from 21.9% in December. Uh, this has been caused in part by a dramatic slide in the value of Egypt's currency, and all segments of the economy there are being impacted, including food, medical services, housing. Nearly 30% of Egyptians now live in poverty, and they're struggling to provide just the most basic of necessities. Now, the problems actually started back in 2016 when Egypt launched a reform program to overhaul the country's battered economy. They decided to float the value of the Egyptian pound while slashing subsidies for fuel and water and electricity. Uh, those were necessary reforms to help Egypt receive more international aid, but the timing was terrible. Uh, the COVID epidemic then hit the country hard with the collapse of tourism. And then Russia's invasion of Ukraine caused the price of wheat to skyrocket. Most people don't know that Egypt's the world's largest wheat importer. To help fight inflation, the government raised interest rates and devalued the pound again, but this wiped out most people's savings while causing the cost of living to surge. In a bit of positive news, the International Monetary Fund has approved a $3 billion aid package for Egypt, and Egypt's natural gas discoveries in the Mediterranean have raised the prospects of future income for the country. Uh, they've also been selling off some of their state assets to Gulf nations to help plug their financial gap. Uh, the country hopes tourism will soon rise again to pre-COVID levels to help bolster that section of their economy. So let's hope they're able to turn the corner and get a handle on inflation for the sake of the average Egyptian who's now struggling to feed his or her family. And that's a look at current events from Charlie Dyer, who is in Israel. Visit his photos and videos at our Facebook page. Coming up, I Found the Truth. It's Mike's story on the land and the book. He was raised in a Christian home, then converted to Islam, but something wasn't right. Mike's story sounds like a fascinating audiobook, and the good news is we're going to let you hear it coming up. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and joining us today, a very special couple, Tom and Joanne Doyle, are with Uncharted Ministries. They launch Christians into relationships with their persecuted brothers and sisters in the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and beyond. Joanne is also fully invested in an outreach known as the Not Forgotten Ministry. We're going to say hello to Tom in a minute, but hey, it's ladies first. Joanne, welcome to the land of the book. Hey, give us a quick overview of Not Forgotten. Oh, 
hello, John. Thank you for having us today. It's always a treat to be with you all. Um, yes, Not Forgotten is a ministry that reaches out to women, both Muslim women, Jewish women, and even women here in the West. And the heart of Not Forgotten is to elevate women to their biblical place of honor that Christ has secured for them through his death and resurrection. So we see that women are in many countries, actually most countries, are the ones that suffer often the greatest. And so Jesus, just as we see in, in Scripture, elevates them. And that's what we're seeking to do through his love. And we, we love the ministry. Joanne is here with her husband, Tom. You guys partner with a ministry known as I Found the Truth. Uh, Tom, what's this all about? Well, you know, we wanted to tell stories of Muslims that have come to faith in Christ. And so we started videoing them, and they are thrilling, whether it happened in Iran or Saudi Arabia or here. And so these are testimony stories about what the Lord's doing. And in the midst of it, Christians are waking up and realizing, boy, the power of the gospel to save people, even from a Muslim background, even if they might have been fanatical. It's so strong. And so they just inspire people. And gosh, last year we had over 2 million views, John. So it's taken off. Joanne, give us a super quick sketch of a guy named Michael. We're about to hear his story, a very uh, interesting background. I mean, raised in a Christian home, then converting to Islam, it leaves you scratching your head. But uh, how did you bump into him and, and his story? Yeah, so Mike is this wonderful guy. If you could see him, he's you know big and muscular and, in fact, worked in a prison. And he says he was raised in a Christian home. But one thing we've learned working in the Middle East is we have to be really careful with our terminology because we as evangelical following Christ, you know, Christians think the word Christian can mean someone that's accepted Jesus as their Savior, someone that's born again. But in the Muslim world, it just means you're not a Jew and you're not a Muslim. And so... Um, Mike will tell you himself, he said, I wasn't born again. Mm. I was a nominal Christian, so I really didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. He even went to a Bible college or something, but it, it was more religious than it was really teaching the Word of God. So that's the first thing that we need to understand, is Mike did not know Jesus, his Savior. All right, so that's some background on Mike's story, but we're going to let him tell it in his own words. Uh, again, you can hear and watch the entire video at I Found the Truth, but let's listen to Mike's story. I was working at a prison, and in this prison there were Muslims there, and they started giving me literature. And I started reading this literature in hopes to convert Muslims to Jesus. What I came to find out was they presented questions to me that I wasn't prepared to answer. And I found myself at that time with a lot of doubts, especially with regards to the Trinity. How could God be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? At that time, I started really struggling, trying to go to my minister, my college professors, trying to understand what is the Trinity. And the more I got into learning about Islam, trying to just reason through all this, I found myself uh, coming to believe that Muhammad may have been in the Bible. I started to doubt Jesus' deity. I started to believe that maybe he was just a prophet. And after about three years of intense study, I found myself just coming to the reality that I believed in my heart that God was one, that he could not have a son, and that Muhammad was the last prophet. And I actually went to the masjid or the mosque, and I took my shahada, and I ended up embracing Islam. From that time forward, I went deep into the Islamic faith. I went to an Islamic university and I started studying because I wanted to become an imam. 
I wanted to become a scholar and I wanted to lead people to Islam because I believed Islam was the true faith. I thought, you know, I need to convert my wife into Islam. I was raising my kids Muslim, so that was good. So the next one I really wanted to work on was my father. So I started to throw things at him from the Bible, trying to get him to question his faith. My dad wouldn't budge. He wouldn't, he wouldn't break. That's why I really started to go deep into the Islamic faith. I started looking into a lot of the teachings of the Quran more in depth. I started to really question, why doesn't the Quran give me, or give us, our Muslims, a detailed understanding of what happened to Jesus? And if he is the Christ, or if he is al-Masih in Arabic, the Messiah, how come the Quran or any Islamic literature does not describe what the Messiah means from the Bible? What's going on here? Like, what is really going on? I started to really think, man, what am I doing? I started looking back in the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 started to pop up all the time in my mind, the suffering servant. And the more I started to question, the more I started to, to go deep and talk to some of my Christian friends, they would start to pray with me. And I'm like, I don't want you praying with me. I didn't want their prayers. My dad's church was praying all the time. All these things started happening. These feelings started to come to me. Do I, do I even know God? Is Allah God? And I remember saying my night prayer and I went to bed, I went to sleep. And early in the morning, I remember in my dream, I was thinking about the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. And then at that time, this face of a Hebrew man just appeared to me. And he didn't say anything. He just looked at me in his eyes. just dark and piercing like he was just looking through my soul and I said this is Jesus he just looked at me and I was like scared I didn't know what to do then I woke up in peace and love so I went to work the next morning and uh I was running an addiction treatment program in a jail and this good Christian man named Steve George, he said, Brother Mike, he said, Jesus told me to tell you that he loves you. My mind was blown, but I didn't fully surrender to Jesus at that time. I was still considering myself a Muslim and then some days a Christian. It was just, a, I was a mess, a confused, uncertain mess. And I remember December of uh, 2012, maybe the second week, I went, to I went to this church I'd been visiting. And the pastor said, now's the time to ask Jesus for something, something special. I remember praying and jokingly in my mind, saying, give me the peace and love that surpasses all understanding that you, you get, Paul. If you're real, Jesus, if you're real, give me this. I ended up just coming home and surrendering my life to Jesus. I had to really step out and walk out on faith. And I'm going to walk by faith, Jesus, and, and I'm accepting you into my heart. And I believe you are the Son of God and that you died for my sins. And from that po point forward, that was 2013 until now, I'm not gonna tell you it's been easy, but 
I have grown stronger and stronger in my relationship with Christ. It has been one of the most blessed journeys of my life since then in coming to Jesus Christ. I'm Mike, and this is how I found the truth. You're listening to Mike's story, and this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Tom and Joanne Doyle joining our conversation. Let me ask you guys, whoever wants to grab this one, when people share their testimonies, and many of the testimonies at uh, this I Found the Truth website are from troubled, persecuted nations, do these people have fears of repercussion? You know, uh, John, uh, there is a great possibility, even for ones that live here. In America, I mean, we have court cases where uh, there's been honor killings, as they call it in Islam, where someone became a follower of Jesus and their family wants to kill him. So that is a possibility. Yes, it is. Hmm. Joanne, what kind of impact is this video testimony ministry having? What kinds of things are you hearing by way of feedback? We are getting an incredible response from Mike's story. Uh, first of all, it's a little different because he's um, not, you know, born in a Muslim family, so that's very attractive to a lot of Westerners. You know, I don't know about you, but you can go out sometimes and see women in hijabs, and they're not Middle Eastern-looking. They're very American-looking, very Western-looking. So how did they come to believe in Islam? You know, did they marry a Muslim person or a you know mm-hmm, Middle Eastern mm-hmm. person or what have you? So Mike's story is really attracting the Western people to listen to his story, but it's also attracting people around the globe. Tom, you know the numbers better than I do. He has had the highest viewings of any of the stories that we've played thus far. Yeah, it was just uh, out a couple months ago, and I just looked at 434,000 people have viewed the video. Mm. And, and again, he was a religious Christian, is what he calls it, didn't know about how to defend the Trinity, didn't know Jesus as his Savior. And he was just prime pickings for the Muslims as they were in jail. But to be able to go back into that environment and share the love of Jesus now has been powerful. People have reached out to Mike. He's led people to the Lord that saw his video mm-hmm. and yeah. said, I'm, help me. What do I do? I'm in the same spot you were in. Mm. Now, unlike Mike, who, of course, is, is U.S.-based, uh, I would say the majority of the stories that I found the truth are from people who were born in uh, Middle East countries. and mm-hmm. What makes them cross a, a line of courage and say, okay, yeah, I'll do this. I'll go on camera. I'll let you see my face. I'll let you hear my voice. I will tell the story to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's quite a commitment. It is. <laughs> How does that come about, Joanne? Well, you know, it's so interesting because um, their lives were so desperate before they found Jesus and so utterly transformed that they are willing to pay the cost. They want others to know who are trapped in Islam, who are believing the lies or who are seeking truth, which is why we've called it I Found the Truth. They're wanting to know something's missing in my life. How do I find that? Or a lot of women that are being abused, how do I get out of this abuse? So because their life has so been drastically changed, they want to share their story with others. They are not afraid. In fact, I don't think we've had anyone that has said, don't show my face. Yeah. Everyone has said, I'm willing to do this. Now, they will say, pray for my family, because not all of them have come to faith in Christ. Many mm-hmm. are still Muslims. So there is a cost to this, but they are brave souls. They have a holy boldness. Let's put it that way. They have a holy boldness. So how can listeners use this tool, Tom? What's the, what's the best way? Well, you know what? I think if you meet someone from a Muslim background, ask them where they're from, and wow, you know, I've, I've wanted to go to the Middle East, and I'm seeing these videos from people that live out in the Middle East. Could I send you a link to one? That's normally how people will do it. They'll just 
send it out and uh, just share it with a friend. And the friend may say, well, I don't like this. They're, you know, they're an infidel or whatever, but they might say, well, that's kind of an interesting point of view. You can start a gospel conversation with them. And you know what? Really, John, the ultimate quest in life is to find truth in all areas, Mm -hmm. you know, politically, whatever, you know, socially, what is the truth? And we were going to name this, I found the straight path, because Muslims talk about the straight path. But as we talked to them, interviewed them and asked them, what is the straight path? No one could define it. Mm -hmm. Nobody could. They didn't know what it was, but they're in this quest for it. And so our son, Josh, who leads this said, I think it's simpler. As we talk to Muslims that have become believers, they're all saying, I found the truth. I found the truth. That's why they're willing to lay their lives on the line. And more stories in the making, I presume. Yeah, we have five more Mm. just filmed. And oh, my gosh, they're going to be powerful. And so we might ask the listeners, pray for those that are willing to go on camera and tell their story. Some of the comments are horrific that come in. But then there's others that are interested and need help, and they need hope. And so it's a dynamic ministry, but it really puts them on the front lines globally instantly once that video releases. Tom and Joanne Doyle with Uncharted Ministries. They're introducing us to uh, a ministry they know of called I Found the Truth, and we encourage you to check it out. I Found the Truth. Lots of great stories you can share with your Muslim friends. We've got to have you back again, guys, uh, for another round of stories. Always uh, the time goes too quickly. Thanks for your company. Mm, Thank you, John. God bless you. Blessing, John. Thank you. Great to be with you and Charlie. You guys have a great day. And speaking of Charlie, he's back with some more questions next here on The Land and the Book. You're listening to Moody Radio's The Land and the Book program. We've got four segments here. Our opening segment, if you happen to be with us, was a look at current events. That second segment, fascinating conversation. I hope you agree. Number three, well, that's questions and answers. Charlie, what's going on here? Uh, This is where people ask the questions that have bothered them about the Bible or about theology. And uh, I love it as a teacher because this is where I get to uh, hopefully provide a good answer that takes them to God's Word and shows them what God says about that uh, issue. Well, maybe you have a question about the Passover. What does it have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. In the lead up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life in Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life in Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Now visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there for more information and to sign up. Well, kicking off our question and answer segment today is a very interesting one from Gene. He simply wants to know, when did Lucifer fall and become Satan? Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. The word Lucifer comes from Isaiah 14. I think it's uh, actually a mistranslation, and I don't see Isaiah 14 referring to Satan. But I do believe Satan's pictured in Ezekiel 28, where he's referred to there as the king of Tyre, in contrast to the human ruler of Tyre, who's referred to merely as a prince or a leader. Uh, In that passage, we're told this king of Tyre was in Eden. 
served as a guardian cherub on the mountain of God, was perfect in all his ways from the day he was created till sin was found in him, and was judged by God for his pride. Now, those details make it clear to me that Satan must be in view, and I believe Ezekiel describes Satan in that way as a put-down to the human ruler of Tyre. He thought he was a god, he says in verse 2, but Ezekiel doesn't even refer to him as a king. He was just a prince. Uh, The real king of Tyre was Satan, and the only thing the two shared in common was their pride and their judgment from God. Paul wants to know what or who determined whether a lamb or goat was used for a sin offering. Were lambs and goats equal in covering the sins of the people? Hope you can help me sort through this issue. Yeah, and both sheep and goats were considered clean animals, and both were acceptable as sacrifices. You know, in Genesis 22, when God called Abram to sacrifice Isaac, Isaac wanted to know where the lamb was for burning, and Abram told him God will provide the lamb. But when it came time, what God provided was a ram. So the switch from a lamb to a ram is so natural that most people overlook it, but I think it shows both were functionally equal in the sight of God. And then in the Passover itself, in Exodus 12, God tells Israel to take a lamb for the sacrifice, but then in verse 5 he adds, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So the lamb had to be male and a year old, but it could either be a sheep or a goat, and that wasn't a problem. From Moody Radio, this is The Land of the Book, Segment 3, Questions and Answers. John says, I have a question about Ezekiel 38 and 39. Do you believe this happens before the rapture? Yeah, I personally think the battle will take place during the tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel 9. And my main reason for uh, saying that is because that entire 70th week is for your people, that is Israel, and your holy city, Jerusalem. Now, so what I'm saying is I think the battle focuses on a time when Israel's back in the land and at peace. That's what Ezekiel pictures. And uh, the purpose for the battle is to protect Israel and to bring them back to himself. Now, it could take place in the church age. I mean, that certainly doesn't say that it wouldn't, but it just seems more than likely that the focus is on a time when Israel is uniquely under God's protection. And that sounds like the seven-year period from uh, Daniel 9:27. Now, I can't be too dogmatic, but that seems to make the most sense to me. Roy asks, do you have any thoughts about how burials took place during the time of the Exodus? How did families deal with their grief? Did they carry the bodies and bones of the deceased with them so they could be buried in the promised land? Any archaeological sites or extra-biblical sources that give us any details? Yeah, I I think I can offer some help here. Apart from royal burials, like, like the Egyptian pharaohs and others, most people who died were given a rather simple burial. Now, when they were in the land of Israel, they buried in family tombs, like the cave that Abraham purchased to bury Sarah. But in the wilderness, those who died were likely just simply given a burial outside the camp. You know, no marker, no coffins, just a body placed in the ground and covered over. And the likelihood of archaeologists stumbling on a body by just choosing a random spot to dig, well, is extremely remote. Now, I believe there's biblical evidence that this is what happened. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul wrote about Israel in the wilderness. And in verse 5, he said, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then in Hebrews 3.17, the writer says, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies perished in the wilderness? Now, I put those two verses together, and it seems to me that as the people died, the family just held a simple burial, and those unmarked graves were quickly covered by the dust and sand and, and uh, disappeared for all practical purposes. Another Exodus question, this one from Paul, who takes us to chapter 24, verse 4. It says, Moses wrote down all of the words of the Lord. Question, did the Hebrew language exist then? And if not, what language would Moses have used in writing? 
Yeah, you know, we don't have a lot of archaeological evidence, so it's not an easy question to answer that way. However, I believe Moses wrote and spoke in what they might refer to today as Proto-Hebrew. A small number of texts written in this early form of Hebrew have been found from the 10th century B.C., just a few hundred years after the time of Moses. Now, a few years ago, a scholar named Douglas Petrovich presented a paper at the annual meeting of the American Schools of Oriental Research, and he actually proposed that Hebrew was the world's oldest alphabet, that it was developed by Hebrew speakers in Egypt around 1800 B.C. They simplified Egyptian hieroglyphics into the 22 alphabetic letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, his proposal is considered controversial, but he offers some compelling arguments that support his theory. And if he's correct, and I think he could be, then Hebrew writing would actually date back to the time of Israel's sojourn in Egypt before Moses. And the actual spoken language that they were speaking would then predate the alphabet. So uh, uh, Moses was very likely speaking and writing in an older version of Hebrew. Claudia says, can you please give me an explanation for why Daniel is called Daniel throughout the book and his three friends called by their God-honoring names in chapters 1 and 2. But in chapter 3, they're called by the Babylonian names they were given. Yeah, and we're never told precisely why it's the case, but I think Daniel does provide us with some hints. Uh, In introducing the friends, Daniel gives their original names, but he then uses their new names in chapter 2 and 3 because those were the names assigned to them by the Babylonians, and that's the names by which they were known. Now, in chapter 1, Daniel also tells us the name he was given by the Babylonians, But then five times he introduces himself as Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar. He's saying, in effect, that though the Babylonians referred to him by that name, he really still understood his real name to be Daniel. Now, because of this, I think Daniel's trying to show us that even though the Babylonians could change what he and his friends were called on the outside, they couldn't change who they really were on the inside. Daniel uses the Babylonian names for his friends because they were the names by which they were known. And he uses his Babylonian name for himself 10 times in the book in a similar way. But by letting us know in five of those occurrences, he still viewed himself as Daniel. He makes it clear the plan on the part of the Babylonians to brainwash these captives hadn't worked. If you've got a question, Charlie has an answer. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. And when you send that email, let us know where you listen. Come on, you're proud of that radio station. Or maybe you're just listening on the podcast. That's cool too. But tell us how you listen and we'll give a shout out for whatever that might be. Randy says, I listen to the land of the book on KHCB in Houston. The question, who are the Jews mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3? Yeah, and in those seven letters to the seven churches and and two particular churches, Jesus is describing unbelieving ethnic Jews who are actively opposing and oppressing those who'd come to faith in Christ. And he refers to them as the synagogue of Satan to point out who was really behind the persecution. Paul's words in Romans 9, I think, help clarify the issue. There he wrote, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, meaning not every physical Jewish descendant of Abraham was automatically an heir of God's promises. In fact, Paul demonstrates it by showing that it was Isaac, not Ishmael, who got the promise, though both were physical descendants of Abraham. And then he has a second illustration. He says, Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but the promise only went to the younger son, Jacob. Uh, The Jews living in Smyrna and Philadelphia apparently violently opposed the ministry of the churches in those cities, and Jesus described them as not being Jewish in the sense of being true spiritual descendants of Abraham through faith. They were ethnically Jewish, but actually being influenced by Satan to oppose God's work in these towns. Now, I need to end this on a positive note, though. Even though the Jews in these two chapters violently opposed God's work, they were still ethnically Jewish. 
and it was still at least possible for them to end up coming to faith. I say that because of what took place in the life of Paul. Before he became the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus matched this description of a Jew zealously opposing the work of Christ. But thankfully, Jesus transformed his life. Brian wants some help in sorting out what's with the 300 men chosen to fight the Midianites, those who were lapping and those drinking on their feet. It's confusing. Yeah, and it is confusing, but I think uh, we get a little detail in verses 7 and 8 that help explain it. Pulling the water up into their mouth by using their hand was similar to a dog pulling a water into its mouth using its tongue, which is what set them apart from the others. Uh, that is, the other people knelt down, they got on all fours, stuck their head down into the water. But those who were chosen held their weapon in one hand and scooped up the water with their mouth in the other. And that's a look at questions and answers here on The Land and the Book, where Charlie's devotional is next. heard the expression, he or she is a fair weather friend? The thing of it is, when your work is based outside, you got to show up whatever the weather. In a minute, a devotional from Charlie Dyer called The Fishy Weather Forecast. You'll want to stick around. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Before we uh, head into that interesting forecast, let's uh, check out what somebody comes away with from their recent trip to Israel. My name is Julius Wonglai Singh. An unforgettable experience in Israel for me was the visit to Tel Dan. The geography, the location, but mostly the social activity of what happens in a gate. I had read about it in the scriptures and I've thought about them, but when two members on our trip asked for a reenactment of their marriage vows, We asked the group leader where that could take place, and the gate there was the most natural place. There were other people touring, and there were many people going back and forth. And what I remember in the reenactment of Paul and Pam's wedding vows was the publicness of the event. All eyes are looking at this uh, this couple, and people are stopping. And I guess I never stopped and thought about the significance of a public event that happens in the gate. Reenactment of that event there was very memorable and stayed with me for a long time. Charlie, I I really am intrigued here. You've titled this thing The Fishy Weather Forecast, a devotional based in Matthew 16. uh, I'm already hooked. All right, that's good. I'll reel you in right now then, John. Uh, Well, today's journey is going to take us to Magdala, the hometown of Mary Magdalene. Follow me into the modern boat chapel down near the water. Uh, The replica of an ancient boat in front that lets you know how the chapel got its name. And just behind the boat is an arched window with a stunning view of the Sea of Galilee. And with a view like that, you'll be forgiven if your mind wanders away from what I'm about to share. Now, we know this town as Magdala, but apparently it actually had several names. In Matthew 15, 39, the area is called the region of Magadan, which is an alternative version of Magdala. In describing the same historical event, Mark calls it the region of Dalmanutha, an otherwise unknown name. The Babylonian Talmud referred to the same place by the name Magdala Nunaya, literally Magdala or Tower of the Fishes. And apparently it also had a Greek name, Terakia, which means pickled fish pointing to the importance of the town as a center for processing fish. Now, because of its connection to the Sea of Galilee and to fishing, the people who lived here must have paid close attention to the weather. After all, getting caught out in the middle of the sea in a storm 
was a frightening experience, as we know from several stories in the Gospels. Pithy statements developed that could help someone forecast the weather, and that leads us to today's encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders. We know ancient Magdala had a connection to fishing, but the two synagogues discovered in the town also suggest a strong connection to religion. And that's why it's no surprise that Jesus' arrival in the region of Magdala is followed immediately by one of his frequent encounters with a group of religious leaders. Mark reports that the Pharisees came and began to question him. Matthew is even more blunt. He says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. The Pharisees and Sadducees seldom agreed on anything except perhaps their hatred for this teacher who threatened their hold on power. Uh, Jesus responded to their demand by repeating a weather truism that must have been known by everyone making their living around the Sea of Galilee. Before I ever knew it was in the Bible, I actually learned it from my father, who very possibly learned it while serving in the Navy in World War II. Now, the version I learned was rather simple. Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning. The version quoted by Jesus is slightly longer, but makes the same point. When evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it'll be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. Now, the science behind the statement is actually quite sound. Most weather patterns move from west to east. In the early morning and late evening, the colors of the sky are the result of the sun's rays reflecting through the dust and water vapor in the atmosphere. A red sky at sunset indicates the sun's rays are being filtered through a high-pressure system which has caused the air to sink, holding in dust and other contaminants. An approaching high pressure, it's a sign of clear skies and fair weather. But a red sky at sunrise suggests the high-pressure system is moving east, away from us. And once the high-pressure system has moved on, it's followed by a low-pressure system which brings clouds and rain. The religious leaders wanted a sign. And instead, Jesus quotes a common weather proverb. I suspect they were temporarily confused trying to find a sign about him in this proverb about the weather. But before they could get back on track, Jesus drove home his point. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And then Jesus left. But what does the sign of Jonah have to do with the religious leaders or Jesus? Actually, Jesus had already explained the sign of Jonah back in Matthew chapter 12. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The comparison Jesus makes between the weather proverb and Jonah is profound. The proverb might be generally true, but there are exceptions. There are times when weather systems don't simply move from west to east. Such storms can surprise even the most experienced sailor by coming from an unexpected direction. In Jonah's case, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Storms, violent sea, and a sign from God. Jonah became a sign when the storm ended and he spent three days and nights in the belly of the big fish. Jesus' point is that the ultimate sign to these religious leaders would be his physical death and resurrection, which he had already announced. But they weren't interested in what Jesus had already said. They were looking for simply another way to test him, to get him to misspeak, or as someone might say in sports, they wanted to force an error or cause a fumble. They didn't care about signs. They just wanted to eliminate this threat to their hold on power. So let's head outside and look up at the sky. 
It wasn't fiery red this morning at sunrise, and there weren't any clouds in the sky, and it's been a nice day. Now, as the sun begins to slip behind Mount Arbel just to our west, our view of the sunset's going to be blocked, so we can't use that old proverb right now to make a prediction about tomorrow's weather. And even if we could see the sunset from here, these signs in the sky aren't always as reliable as we might like. But there is a sign we do know with absolute certainty. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so Jesus physically died on the cross and was in the tomb for three days. And just as Jonah came out of the fish, so Jesus rose from the dead. The religious leaders wanted a sign, and Jesus provided it. From the time of Moses on, the purpose of a sign was to validate both the messenger and his message. Jesus' death and resurrection validated his claim to be God's eternal Son, Israel's promised Messiah, and our Savior. So what about you? Are you willing to accept the sign Jesus provided to validate his person and work? Have you acknowledged the reality that he is indeed God's Son, that he came to earth ultimately to pay the penalty for your sin, and that his resurrection proves that his sacrifice was sufficient? If you believe that, have you turned in faith from your sin and called out to Jesus, asking him to forgive your sin and to give you new life in the family of God? The sky might offer a fishy weather forecast, but Jesus can guarantee your eternal salvation in a land where there will be no more storms. If you've never made that decision, why not do it right now? And maybe as you listen to Charlie, you are connecting like you've never connected before, and you want Jesus to be in charge of your life. Charlie, what's the next step? How do, how do people make Jesus their Savior? The nice thing is there's nothing they have to do. It's, we don't earn salvation. Uh, Jesus has already paid the price. All they need to do is right now just say something like this to God. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've fallen short. And I believe that Jesus is your son. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life and he died for my sin. And right now, I want to put my trust in him as my savior. So Lord, I turn from my sin. I turn to your son and I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Give me that eternal life, that new life you promised because of what your son has done for me. And I ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. And if you'd like uh, help with this prayer, maybe get some questions answered about knowing Christ, uh, you can talk with a volunteer right now at 888-NEED-HIM, 888-NEED-HIM. If you'd like to explore this uh, on your own, anonymously online, head to our website, thelandandthebook.org. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll find a button there you can click, How to Know Christ. That's thelandandthebook.org. Well, it's been a great hour, and we're glad that you have spent it with us. Uh, I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.